Welcome to the Malaysia in Deluge series of podcasts about Malaysia's 15th general elections, or GE15. I'm Kian Wong, and with my colleagues at MASA, the Malaysia and Singapore Studies Affiliate of Australia's Asian Studies Association, we're discussing the themes, tropes and tendencies of GE15 with all sorts of experts in politics, the economy, the polls, the media, religion and society. In this episode, Ira Azahari talks about her research into money politics, the various forms it takes beyond usual political donation scandals, the high price of democracy and good government, and why young Malaysians avoid party politics despite these grave times. Ira is a Fulbright Scholar at Albany, the State University of New York, when she's not a senior manager in the Democracy and Governance Unit at Malaysian Think Tank, the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs or IDEAS in Kuala Lumpur. As speculation swirls over a possible hung parliament and backroom deals are needing to be done by all sides, if anyone's to claim the prime ministership and government, Ira says more transparency in how our politics is financed and a better understanding of how expensive, better represented democracy might be is the way forward. Can Malaysia and its burgeoning youth vote avoid further corruption of politics and government found elsewhere? And might a precarious victory at these 15th general elections by one of the coalitions running result in compromises of institutional reform? Ira sets out the work that needs doing. I'm looking at the issue of political financing particularly and how it relates to welfare provision, to democracy, to inclusion of young people, women uh, and other minorities. But I think the literature so far, the research has focused mostly on the nexus between business and politics, between state and politics, looking into uh, you know crony capitalism, state capture and things like that, which is really important. I mean, you know, Prof. Charles Gomez has pioneered that work uh, over the years in, in Malaysia. But I think uh, it's really important that now, of course, you know, the increasing awareness on on why young people should get more involved in politics and, of course, the general concern all around the world on how to make our politics more representative, get more women into politics. I think it's really important to look at the nexus between money politics and also how that affects participation of uh, these these groups, right? And, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, when you look at the, the nexus between business and politics in Malaysia, you know, it is very exclusionary, uh, you know, these these business deals, business slash political deals happen in the smoke-filled rooms, at the golf clubs, you know, in the in the classic old boys clubs uh, that, you know, by definition, actually, just exclude people who are not in those in those networks, uh, who don't have that kind of privilege and position in society. So I think that's a really interesting and important angle to look at. Uh, which is why in this uh, election, uh, G15, I'm actually uh, working on a project to see how money in politics affects the uh, newer parties, actually. So I'm really interested to see how the the youth party, Parti Muda, is uh, raising funds and also how, you know, how they deal with money in the sort of day-to-day operations of politics. I'm also quite interested to, to look at Parti Amanah Negara, actually. Firstly, I think Amana has been rather understudied or probably like neglected, I would say. Not many people are uh, have studied Amana. And also it's interesting to see how a splinter party from, from past, right, is raising funds, is using funds, where they're getting money from. And 
yeah, this is all part of the democratic process. And I think the money politics conversation in Malaysia has always centered also around corruption, right? So if you if you are civil society leaders, you know, who has done just a really, really amazing work on, you know, on, on tracking corruption in politics. But I would like to sort of flip that 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 conversation a bit and start asking the question of um, how much politics actually cost in Malaysia, right? I think the, the, the corruption angle aside, it's really important for Malaysians to realize that politics is expensive. Democracy is expensive, right? Campaigning, uh, you know, even outside of the campaign period, you know, Malaysian politics is incredibly communal. Uh, Malaysian politics uh, rests upon personal relationships between lawmakers and their constituents and all of that activity requires a lot of money and we never ask where this money come from comes from right we just sort of expect it to be there so i think it's really interesting to to, to look at this question of um how much a democracy actually costs so this is something that i hope to, to to find out and you know to sort of stick out some feelers and see if uh, we can get any findings during this election yeah. And and that's the interesting thing, in a way, also about this particular elections, the 15th general elections, which we usually call GE15, in comparison to perhaps what might have been a peak high watermark of a 20 plus years of so-called reformacy that peaked perhaps in GE14 that heralded that short-lived, you know, reformist Pakatan Harapan government. Now we have this huge influx of new voters because of the Undi 18 success of that campaign, which according to you know, surveys and the data indicates an overwhelmingly uh, what, urban influx of young voters, many of whom, well, actually most of whom are young uh, Buimputra and Malay voters. And no one seems to be very sure about how engaged they are. Uh, the Johor state elections was the first time that these automatically registered voters who proportionally make up about a quarter of the whole electorate, which is huge, they didn't seem very enthused. Not many of them voted. Yet, yeah. yet they are automatically registered. So your current research is trying to look at that intersection, right, of public money possibly mostly and some private money and what sort of influence peddling is supposed to be going on and in mm-hmm. and how that might compromise the type of politics how do you see this huge influx of new young voters and how they see politics you know depending on where this money is being spent is it buying their votes mm. buying an outlook yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, clearly, this question of uh, youth voters uh, is a very popular topic across all forums and panels and webinars uh, that I've spoken at spoken at so far, and uh, understandably so, right? Because the, the the number is just really really large, and uh, the 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 data has shown that. I mean, constituencies like Bangi, for example, which is already a, like a super mega constituency, uh, is going to be even 
bigger, more massive than it already is. I think with Undi 18 and ABR, it's around 300,000 voters, right? Wong um, Kian Ming's former constituency. So uh, that that's a really, really interesting and, uh, you know, phenomena. And I don't think anyone has, has figured it out yet. I mean, Ben and Merdeka have done surveys. Um, this is but Ibrahim Sufyan so Merdeka Centre. Yes, from Merdeka Center, uh, you know, they've done their surveys. I think Ilham Center also has done a few. And, you know, there are different findings, right? I think the Ilham Center one uh, was quite striking. Uh, this is the one they did. I'm not sure, was it last year where, you know, they found that um, actually a lot of young voters are quite conservatively inclined. And, you know, there was a lot of articles trying to dissect why, why that is. My take on it is, you know, there is definitely a, a apathy, right, surrounding partisan politics, and I, I think this is not just not just young voters. Actually, I think, you know, across all age group, and frankly, you can't really blame people for being disillusioned and apathetic of of the political parties and politicians that we have. But you know, I think despite that clear disillusionment, I would push back a bit and say that. You know, it doesn't mean that young people are not interested in politics, right? Like, I mean, if you look at the, uh, you know, the the last two years, especially when when Malaysia was down with COVID, I mean, it was young people who was at the forefront of, you know, so many causes like the Lawan protest, the Hartal Doctor Contract protest. There were a few other protests on, uh, I think it was uh, the 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 uh, prices of food. And all of these causes were led by young activists, by young people who, you know, I said, look, we've had enough of, you know, the the generations before us failing Malaysia, uh, failing to, you know, uh, give us an e- give us an economic system that is equitable, uh, social mobility which was promised to us, you know, obviously now that's not uh, happening. Uh, so, yeah, I think young people are at the forefront of all these causes. But, you know, because our politics has sort of descended into a, a, a rather divisive and becoming just more toxic every day, you know, young people are resisting partisan politics because of that. And and it's not just that. I think young people do not see partisan politics as a platform in which these causes they feel so strongly for can be, you know, can be, can be, can be fought through politics, right? They just don't see that. Um, in fact, you know, I'm sure a lot of young people think that, you know, partisan politics is the cause to a lot of these problems that young people are facing. So, I mean, I said this in a few forums before, like, I would actually challenge political parties and say, like, you know, it's on you to prove why partisan politics is you know, is is a platform and is a way in which your concerns about the country can be can be solved or you can make a change through through partisan politics. And I don't think, you know, at least not the mainstream political parties have really, you know, ra- ro- risen up to that challenge, right? Um, and that is part of the reason why a party like Muda was formed because um, this group of young people has, has had enough of joining mainstream parties and having to be in the youth wing and then sort of like, you know, then you have to run for the uh, the president of the youth wing. And then after that, then you can go to the, uh, I don't know, the older people wing. And, 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 and you know, you, you're just never going to like get out of that, that, that shell. Um, 
and you know partisan politics are just extremely hierarchical and it's just not easy for for a young person to rise so you know let's just form a party where we have no wings uh you know where we are targeting young people and you can come in and you can yeah you can be you can be leaders in the party so uh yeah so i would say that you know this young people and sort of not being interested in politics i would say well partisan politics yes uh but i think young people are very engaged in many political causes yeah that's my take on it and i think that's very interesting because what you're also sort of saying in a way is that these new parties like muda are trying to engage a whole new generation that has been frozen out by you could say parties of old men right because even yes. the women are missing in this instance here mm-hmm. and the awful truth that seems to be coming out now in terms of the rush to nominations day and all the candidates is that there appears to have been a percentage drop in the number of women candidates being put up for elections which is actually going backwards that's right so yeah so what is that you know i mean this would add in a way surely to that disillusionment with when you say partisan politics i presume you mean you know formal big p party politics yeah mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to the small p politics on the ground the very many civil society driven efforts by communities That's to right. deal with what was government failing really over the pandemic yeah That's right yeah yeah do you, do you sense i mean looking at the data that you've seen as well that there remains a very strong bedrock of this disillusionment to the extent that the apathy would mean a lower voter turnout uh yes i do think that lower voter turnout is uh one of the big concerns actually about this election uh you did mention before about the johor state elections uh you know that was a clear case where uh people didn't turn up you know of course malaysians who uh, worked in singapore couldn't come back actually uh to to cast their vote and that clearly i think had an impact on how the, the results of the election turned out there is i think also another school of thought that says the johor state elections and the malacca state elections uh shouldn't actually be used as an indication of how the this general election would uh turn out uh because you know that was during the height of the pandemic and you know yeah people couldn't come back and also i think the especially the malacca state elections i think was just a kind of like a very blatant power struggle that even that i still struggle to understand what happened <laughs> till today so uh you know but the general election is different right there is a uh, i i guess it's a, a bit more on a grander scale obviously and you know there's just a lot more attention uh put to it especially even by the by the political parties but i you know regardless of all of that i think we shouldn't discount the fact that you know people might just choose to stay home uh in in this election and there are many reasons for that but i i personally feel the Sheraton move in 2020 uh really shattered people's faith in in the in elections right in in how casting my vote can actually make a difference and and it, that and, was, and, it, and think, it did yeah. it did for about 22 months right yes yes yeah that's right that's right so you had this you know government that purported to be reformist that broke 
what, over six decades of one type of government to another one. And then through backdoor dealings, it was all perfectly legal, Mm -hmm. constitutionally sound. Yeah. But it removed (laughs) the will of the people for something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and also the, the problem, I think, with what happened during that bizarre week during the Sheraton move is that... February 2020. Um, yes. February 2020, uh, that fateful week, uh, was that constitutionally, yes, uh, you know, it was it was legal. But I think, you know, CSOs like Bursay has, uh, you know, done some studies on how parliament actually should be the institution that determines who the next prime minister is, you know, and, and all of this should be actually done in parliament and not like, you know, knocking on the door of the palace and like every instance of, uh, oh, we're not sure who the prime minister is, let's go ask the king, right? I mean, the king has a very important constitution constitutional role of course but before that our institutions actually need to play that role so by right there should have been a vote of confidence or no confidence in in our parliament to determine uh, who has support you know and 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 i think the sheraton sets a bad precedent uh, in that sense right it, it shows that um, you can do all of these dealings uh, outside of parliament and get a prime minister. While constitutionally sound, I think, you know, there are many other steps that needs to be taken before that, uh, which I think would increase legitimacy, I suppose, uh, at least in the eyes of the public, which is really important, right? I mean, democracy is about symbols at the end of the day. So what does parliament symbolize? If it doesn't symbolize, you know, if it doesn't symbolize what what people think you know democracy should be, then it will render it meaningless. So, I think a lot of institutional strengthening needs to happen, and I hope that um something like Sheraton sort of like makes people realize that like what is the role of our institutions actually? Um, you know, this can't be how we're going to choose a prime minister forever, right? So yeah, I think I think Sheraton is 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 one of the watershed moments in our history obviously but you know the bright side of that i think is yeah you know people have uh young, young people especially um have decided to take things into their own hands whether or not they will do it through the ballot box it still remains to be seen hopefully you know they, they will come out uh to vote you know if they don't i think it it, it, it warrants a lot of self-reflection by political parties, politicians across the board, and that, you know, this kind of politics cannot go on. It can't, it can't be politics as usual, right? I mean, all around the world, we're having, you know, we're having discourse about uh, inclusivity, about diversity, about the need for representation across all, as across, you know, all institutions in, in society. So I think it's high time Malaysia had that conversation. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, maybe this election will will spark that. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, and it's very interesting that you talk about the need for that type of government uh, credibility or legitimacy because uh, you you obviously deeply you know entrenched in the policy development policy advocacy areas, and of course, as a policy wonk yourself, I'm sure you're very distressed and a bit disturbed that you can't do effective governance or good policy if you don't have legitimate hold on power right mm-hmm. yeah and and i think what 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 we have seen and what 
is frustrating is you know this 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 phenomena in Malaysia where uh, policy is tied to individual politicians, right? As opposed to you know being being a, a sort of a consistent or, or or something that can endure uh, political change. So that is another thing that you know we really need to work on because. Uh, I mean, politicians and governments and political parties come and go. Uh, you know that is the the process of democracy. And honestly, I think you know we we shouldn't go back to to a time when one party can rule for sixty years, right? And we we are not going to get back there. I think you know our the political situation has fragmented so much. But despite that, you know how do we get pol- government policy to be more long term? Right, so I think the the problem here now that we have is that it's a vicious cycle, right? So, when a minister comes into power, he or she will introduce a policy, and then the civil servants will then need to execute that policy. But the civil servants are also like, oh, you know, the minister is probably going to change like in a few months. So why should we work so hard on this? And then civil society, you know, like think tanks like ideas come come in and. You know, we engage with civil servants, and we talk, and you know, we really want to offer our help in making these policies work. And you know, and and but then even in our minds, we're like, oh, you know, by all this instability, probably mean that the minister will be gone in a few months. And you know, why are we doing any of this? So, so this is actually a real problem because then we are suffering from a situation where uh, we policies just cannot. You know, we we don't have policies that are long term and visionary enough for for Malaysia to move forward. And when policies are tied to individuals, you know, it it just it just becomes sort of an individual project and not you know something that you know all Malaysians can benefit long term. So this is something that so the, this institutional strengthening needs to happen within that policy space as well uh, for policies to be carried out. So yeah, I mean these things cannot exist in a vacuum, right? Uh, all of the sort of all of the parts of the puzzle need to fit in together for something to work. Yeah, and that's why, in a way, I guess it's quite vital the type of work and research you're looking into about political financing in order mm-hmm. to, in a way, strengthen, I suppose, that institutional process of how policies are developed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean. You know, because in in Malaysia we 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 do not regulate political financing. Yeah, the only thing that we regulate is uh, individual candidate spending during the campaign period, and even then, it's not monitored uh, by anyone actually. So a candidate just files uh, to the election commission and says, "Yeah, I spent a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand ringgit," and yeah, that's it, right? So no one very you know is that verified? We don't know um, if anyone uh, actually reaches those requirements uh, you know is there any action taken we don't know right so when political financing remains unregulated well i mean you know i i, I don't have to go into 1mdb and all of that but you know when as 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 the public when we don't know what are the levers that are actually you know that are moving our politics and you know what 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 is what is the level of influence that different actors have on politics right and and that's the thing when i when i say this uh, many times i get the response the response that i get is oh you know as as a politician or as a party we we cannot reveal who our funders are because you know then they, they won't want to give us money anymore or you know some funders give money to uh 
to several parties, you know, which is, is, is not surprising. I think that's quite normal. So, you know, we, we don't want to. So, and, and you know, the, so on, on the political party side, there is resistance to transparency because of this fear. Um, and on the public side, I think, you know, there's just not enough awareness or not enough understanding about how money fuels politics. And this is interesting because I was, um, I was going through Facebook and, you know, a lot of the candidates I noticed uh, during this election uh, are doing um, sort of public fundraising uh, posters, you know, with like links to their bank account. This is especially for the, the newer parties like Muda and Amana have noticing this. And of course, the, the funding model where you get small donations from a larger number of people is ultimately more transparent than sort of, you know, one tycoon giving hundreds of millions of ringgit, obviously. But if if you if you look at the comment section of these fundraising appeals by these candidates, it's it's really interesting, and I think it tells you a lot about the, you know, about how people think about money in politics. Because I went through the comments, and you know, many of them say things like, "Why are you asking money from us? You are a you want to be a YB, right?" So you should have money. So why are you running for elections if you don't have money? And why should we give money to you? You know, if you get elected, it's not like you, 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 you're going to care about us. You know, so this, I, I, this is really interesting because I feel like where do Malaysians expect their politicians to get money from, right? Because uh, money from tycoons and corporations, okay, that's corruption, so cannot. And then, uh, you know, asking for money from the public point or cannot because you know as a politician you're supposed to have money and then yeah so so where where do you expect your politicians to get money from so i feel like there is this expectation for politicians to have money and where that money comes from is like we don't really care uh so 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 i think this is this is interesting right because i feel like even if a candidate wants to be transparent and wants to raise money in a more equitable manner they just they just cannot do it because people don't understand why they should be giving money and this is really interesting because i think if you come I, I spoke to a colleague about this and if you compare it to say a charama that you know the the big political speeches and rallies that happen during campaigns what you know, in Malaysia, they will usually pass around a cap or a box for donations, right? And in those instances, people actually do donate. Uh, so I think, you know, in a terama, obviously, I think you're kind of preaching to the converted. So people are fine with like passing with their money. But this sort of public fundraising appeal, I think, is quite... I, I'm not so sure how well it's worked. So this is actually one of the things I'm interested to find out uh, when I get back to Malaysia. I do want to ask some of these candidates is, um, you know, how much money do you do you actually get from your fundraising appeals, right? Uh, are they even enough for you to carry out your campaign? My hypothesis is that it's not. Um, yeah, simply because people just don't see why they should be giving money to politicians. So I think this is something that hasn't been explored actually in, mm. in money politics in Malaysia. Thanks, Ira. So Ira, coming back to this election, GE15, where does this struggle in a way for good governance political legitimacy come down to over the issues of a new type a, a new type of accountable money politics that you're talking about and this again engaging a huge mass of new voters to make sure that they are not so cynical that 
they don't turn out, that some of them will turn out. I mean, how do you see this? Uh, some people are talking that thanks to a low voter enthusiasm and enthusiasm gap that we might even end up having a hung parliament. Do you see any of that really being possible? Yeah, I think the post-election scenario, it will probably, it will not be likely that we will have one party, you know, who has uh, one coalition, I mean, who crosses the line to get the majority. I think that, you know, many predictions have said that it's not likely. And I, I myself feel that that is not likely simply because, I mean, if you look at the, the coalitions, you know, BN and PN, you know, cater to the same audience. And then you have uh, GTA that's kind of also trying to cater to the same audience. So, you know, I, I do think it will be split and there will need to be some sort of post-election understanding another MOU perhaps, uh, which is, I think ultimately it's not a bad thing because, you know, in the MOU uh, that was signed, uh, there were several uh, reform, uh, you know, institutional reform agendas that were put in place, uh, which I think is positive. And at the end of the day, I think that is the kind of politics that we should aspire to. Uh, you have, you know, different parties with different interests, but, you know, who come together to to sort of, you know, come up with an agenda that's good uh, for Malaysia. You know, regarding young voters, uh, well, the I guess the question is if they turn out to vote, I mean, who are they going to vote for, right? It's, you know, people keep repeating this issue of bread and butter, uh, which, you know, of course is really important. But I do also think that, you know, many young people today have, uh, you know, a deeper understanding of um, the more structural reforms that we need, right? You know, the kind of accountability that, that needs needs to, you know, needs to be improved in terms of governance, anti-corruption uh, and all of that. Uh, I'm not sure how climate change comes into play. I think the, the latest survey by Merdeka um, shows that there is interest from young people on, on climate issues. You know, I, I don't know if our political parties even have the vocabulary for that uh, on climate issues. Doesn't seem seem so, but who knows, right? I mean, again, you know, Malaysia cannot be left behind in these big conversations that is happening around the world. Climate change is a, a huge deal, and it, it is a huge agenda for many political parties around the world. So I'm. I'm I want to see that in Malaysia as well. Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, whatever happens post the election, I would say that, you know, a, a fragmented political system uh, can actually be a good uh, opportunity for more structural reforms to happen. And, and I really hope that civil society can really play that role. That was Ira Asari, Fulbright Scholar and the Senior Manager in Democracy and Governance at Ideas Malaysia. You've been listening to a series of podcasts on Malaysia's GE15, produced by Kian Wong in association with MASA, the Malaysia and Singapore Society Affiliate of the Asian Studies Association of Australia.